Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hi folks, and welcome to Miyagi Mornings. What the heck episode is this? 152, I think? Yes, 152 today. As I'm checking in with our folks on Odyssey and Float as well, that's when you see me looking over to the side. Well, if you're watching the video, that is. So we're going to talk about strategic relocation today. And this came last week. I did a poll and said, here's three things we can talk about. And um, we did the one that won, and that was Thursday's episode. And then the number two episode was strategic relocation within the United States. And it got a lot of interest. It outdid the number three option by more than two to one. And it was only about ten votes behind uh, the option that won, which, honestly, at this point, I've already forgotten what that was. Anyway, because um, we've got a weekend in between, and my brain cells went to sleep during this weekend. Uh, but I want to start out with what is strategic relocation for the purpose of this discussion? And I've heard a lot of people discuss this subject, especially in the prepper space. It's a very common subject. And what I always find, they've made a choice, they've gone there, and they think you should do the same, because obviously if their choice was best for them, then their choice is best for you. I have a, I guess depending on how you put it down on paper, a one or two word response to that viewpoint. Bullshit. Straight up bullshit. My life and your life are different. My income and your income are different. My likes and your likes are different. My things that I want to do with freedom probably differ from the things that you want to do with your freedom. And since none of the states are actually free here, and and hopefully we are recording, I I think I blew this and I'm going to have to start over. You know what? I'm not going to worry about it. I'll strip the audio out of this. Uh, I forgot to turn the recorder on on the other computer. made some more work for myself. But... We, we probably agree with what freedom is, right? Freedom is being able to do what you want as long as you're not hurting anybody else. That's like the best definition of freedom I can give. But different states have different types of restrictions. So if there was a state that was very, very libertarian, and there isn't, sorry, New Hampshire, it's as good as you are, you're, you're not, um, then you would just say, since I have the, the broad freedom, that's the place for me, maybe, depends. But what we really need to look at is what do you want to do with that freedom? And then we judge states based on how free you are in the things that are the most important to you. I would love to just say, hey, if you come to Texas, you have all the freedom you want. And, you know, Texas is an example of a state that's so damn big, it's kind of like its own nation. And there's tremendous differences in how much freedom you have in Texas based on where you live in Texas. And that's true of any state, but it's really true here. So it all needs to be considered. So for my purposes in this discussion today, strategic relocation I am defining as moving to a new location because you personally benefit in the ways most important to you as you live your life. And this will consider economics, 
personal freedom and overall lifestyle. But I am going to start out right from the beginning um, with some of the states that are at the top of my list for consideration if you're going to consider this. And the criteria that makes this list is no income tax. I, I don't really like the idea of moving to a state and then paying tax on my income that I could move to another state and not pay. And my income, while I believe in CPAs and tax attorneys and structure, and I can do a lot to eliminate taxation, the bigger my income is, the bigger the piece the state's going to take, unless the number is zero. And most states have progressive income taxes, which means that they start low and they go up. And once you make like over $30,000 or $40,000, all of a sudden you're rich and you're paying a top tax rate. So a lot of times you'll look at a state and they'll say something like their tax rate is 2.1 to 12%. And when you find yourself in that 12 percentile, that's a lot of money to give up. So the states that don't have an income tax that I would consider, Texas, Tennessee, Florida, New Hampshire, Alaska, Wyoming, and South Dakota. That doesn't mean I wouldn't consider anybody else. If somebody's asking about sales tax, we'll get to that in a minute. We're starting out with just income right now. Okay. Um, there are two states that have no income tax that I, I would probably personally not choose to live in. One is Washington State, and the other one is Nevada. Those are the other two states in our country that you can have a zero income tax rate, and I would not choose them for a variety of reasons. Washington is a liberal shithole. I'm sorry. I know, I know eastern Washington is different, but people in western Washington decide a lot of shit for y'all, and I'm not moving there. No way. No how, no chance. Nevada... I personally find it geographically undesirable, and I think it's got a lot of other problems that are going to get worse over time, but that's just my opinion. Because now we need to look at the rest of the criteria. So let's start with taxation a bit. People say, well, what about sales tax? And people will say something like, well, Texas has like an eight and a quarter percent sales tax rate. They have up to an eight and a quarter percent sales tax rate. It actually has a state sales tax rate of six percent. But all of that goes to the side if we start looking at what is our total burden because of that sales tax. And I don't know every other state, so this is why you have to individually break this stuff down. But I can give you an example that seriously mitigates sales tax in the state of Texas. Two things are not taxed with sales tax in this state that are often significant expenses for people. One is labor, i.e. service. So if I get work done on my house and there's a material and labor charge on there. I don't pay sales tax on the labor. So a lot of times running a business and you're using a lot of labor, right? You're not going to pay and I'm talking about, you know, a subcontractor type arrangement or whatever. You don't pay any sales tax on that. The next is food, as long as it's not prepared food. So you go to the store and you buy a pre-cooked brisket, there's sales tax on it, but most of the food we buy is not prepared food. And prepare, non-prepared food, and that doesn't mean like a bag of potato chips or something. That's considered food. Not Prepared means somebody cooked it for you, uh, etc., in advance of selling it to you. Like a value-add prepared food is not taxed. So those are two really big expenses for people that are not taxed. So you got to look at the total economic footprint. So how much money you earn, how much money you're going to spend, taxes you can avoid, taxes you can't. Another place, Texas, has, um, we are all one says, I wouldn't go to the U.S. because police there are scary. Same with NSA department. You know what? I don't know where you live, but as bad as police can be in the United States, they're a lot worse than a lot of other places. And this is within the United States, so sorry, dude. Um, 
These are people that already live in the United States relocating within our republic. And maybe I should say a little bit about that first. One of the real freedoms that this country enjoys um, compared to other countries around the world is the freedom that we are a republic. And that's why what we're talking about today can even happen. And if anybody's ever doubted how big a deal that is, I just want you to think of the life of someone over the past year and a half that lived in Texas or Florida or South Dakota versus someone that lived in New York, New Jersey, or Pennsylvania. Just consider that. And that, that's why we can do this. Um, hey, Zanderson yes, says, yes, the U.S. is a scary place, almost as scary as the rest of the world. I've been around a lot of different places in the world, and while I like the idea of like a Plan B passport for certain strategic reasons, I'm going to tell you, you probably don't want to live anywhere but here if you have a choice and you can live here. For now. We'll, we'll see how that goes. And I would say, you know, how's France working out for you right now, or Holland or whatever with this COVID crap? So, so again, we got to look at overall cost. So we need to look at things like real estate. Like what I, I, we, I just had a conversation with some folks that uh, recently moved here uh, at my uh, nephew's place this weekend. And they're blown away, even with the astronomical rise in real estate prices in Texas, of what two, $300,000 will buy here. They, they, they can't get, they're like from, you know, one was from Boston, one was from California. I don't know what part of it, but both of them were just like, this doesn't even make sense what your money will buy here. Now we do have higher property taxes. There's a lot of ways around that, though. Like, where you live has a lot to do with how much you pay in property taxes. So that's another thing that's a lot more malleable and you have a lot more control. Like, that's why, you know, I, I don't like any tax, but I have a lot of control over how I spend my money, which gives me a lot of control over how much sales tax I pay. I have a lot of control over where I live within my state. That gives me a lot of property tax control. When I earn income, there's a certain percentage of my income that I cannot do anything except say, yep, there it is. And there's a certain amount of it that I cannot put an expense against. And then I'm going to pay tax on that. And if you're asking me for 2, 3, 5, 13% of my money on top of all the rest of it, no, I'm sorry. That's why I'm big on uh, no sales tax. Or I'm sorry, no income tax. Next is climate. I actually love New Hampshire, guys. I really do. I am not going to New Hampshire. I'm not doing it. I'm not moving there. It is in a geographic location for me that doesn't work, and it is a winter state that I don't want to live in. I don't have any problems with it for anybody else. I love New Hampshire. I love what the Free State Project's doing. They're a sponsor of my show. I encourage people to consider it for themselves. But I don't want to live in a place where it's freezing cold three to four months out of the year. I personally don't want, and there's people that would feel the exact same way about my choice to live in Texas. They don't want to live in a place that's four or five months a year of blazing heat. I don't like it either. I like the alternative less. Okay, so we have to look at this from a standpoint of what we want to choose for ourselves, not what Jack says. Right? We're back to what makes sense for us. Um, total tax footprint. Like I said, you need to look at what is the total cost from a tax burden standpoint to live in a certain location versus another. You may find, for instance, that depending on what your income is, if you are not a high-income individual, that your tax burden might be a lot lower in a state with a state income tax. You have to make, that's what I'm saying, we cannot make a direct apple-to-apples comparison here. 
Like a high a high state income tax rate for me is a big deal. If you've like pared down your life or you have a small income and you're much more concerned with how much tax do I pay on my property, you might find that a state like Arkansas that has a fairly I think it's like seven and a half percent, but might have a lower cost of living for you. And then you got to look at everything else that goes with that. So all economics and all taxes need to be considered. Um, I think that you really want a state that has republicanism within the state. And that's what I was talking about with Texas. And, and here's what I mean by that. There are states where most of the laws about what you can do with your property, um, how your property is zoned, etc., are statewide. The state sets that, and all the counties and the cities do is add to it. There are states like Texas where the state itself, the state of Texas basically says, counties, do it however you want to. Cities, do it however you want to. We have state law. It doesn't have much to do with anything, with what a person does with their property, unless it's like you're cooking meth. And we don't care. It's up to you. And hence, we have like Houston, which is one of the largest cities in the world, has no zoning. Right? A lot of parts of Texas do. Houston, giant city, six million people, doesn't. Um, where I live is unincorporated. I literally need no permission to do anything where I live, except when you first build, you got to get a septic permit for 500 bucks. You don't even have to put the septic tank in, honestly. You, you should, you're supposed to, but honestly, once they sign off on your permit and go away, that's all you need to build. So, like, it's 500 bucks and you're free to do anything you want unless, again, you're cooking meth or something like that. If I want to put in a building, a shed, remodel my house, I don't even have to follow building codes where I live. I can build a house and co building codes do not apply. Now, most of them you would follow, but there's stupid building codes that add costs that are just because somebody needed to put a number in something. Uh, for instance... When I had some plumbing work done in my, my kitchen remodel, they wanted to put this vent thing in that they didn't need. And this guy said, I don't need to do it, but I have to do it to be the code. I'm like, we don't have any codes here. So he didn't do it. Right? So we didn't have to relocate that, uh, that vent. We just left it the way that it was, and it worked fine. And he said it would work fine, and it still works fine. So we have to really think about where we live within a state like Texas. And I think you want that option. I think you want the ability to have a dramatically different life within your own state. So if your state starts doing some stupid shit, you can once again relocate without necessarily leaving your state. Um, I also think that you really need to look at your employment. If you're an aerospace engineer, there are certain states you're just not going to get a job in unless you can telecommute. I think that if you want the most freedom in your life, you want to work from home. And I say this as somebody that not when I started the podcast, but for much of my career, even though I, tr I had to travel a lot to do it because I was in sales and marketing and things like that, but I spent most of my career working from home. It is not a little bit better. Let me explain how much better working from home is than working in an office. Imagine you're getting on an airplane and you can choose between coach, center seat, last row next to the lavatory, where the seat doesn't even go back. Or you can sit in first class, but first class is upgraded to the point where it's like flying international first class, where your bed goes all the way back, you have your own sound system, you have unlimited food and drink, and it is just like you feel like you're sitting in a lounge the entire time. That's how much better working from home is than working in an office, in my opinion. 
So if you can leverage that, then we open up the door to anywhere that has an internet connection. So you do what you will with that. But if you have a job that doesn't lend itself to that, you've really got to consider that and where you move. And I think you really do need to look at services and leisure as it applies to you. Because there's people like me that you're you're like, well, I want to go to a bunch of concerts and stuff. And I'm like, I don't care. And I'll travel to do that. I, I don't really care. It's not important to me at all. I'm going to an Aaron Lewis concert in October. It's the first concert Darth and I've been to since I went to Jimmy Buffett like four years ago and, and came away from it thinking, this dude needs to re- I love him, but he needs to retire from touring. He's done. Um, before that was another Jimmy Buffett concert, right? So, like, and I, if I have to drive to another state for that or whatever, you know, I'll, I'll do it. So I don't really care. I do care about the dining scene. I like nice restaurants. I don't go out a lot, but I want a couple times a month go somewhere and spoil my wife. So, like, that's important to me. So I don't want to live in rural middle of nowhere. I want to live rural urban fringe. So you've got to really think about when you relocate, not just the state itself, but where in the state. What are you looking for? Um, it, it's it, 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 There's a lot to that overall lifestyle quotient, and I don't think it should be ignored. And I think that, like, to make this work, if you're if you're not single... You need to go through all of this shit with your significant other because stuff that you'll leave out becomes important to them. Like the money is something that everybody gets. Climate, like if you have a significant other and they don't like the cold, that's going to be a non-starter if you want to move to a really cold state. If you have a significant other that really hates the heat, same thing. If you have a significant other that struggles with allergies and hasn't found a remedy for that yet that works for them, then certain places are going to be way worse and some places are going to be way better. I mean, all that has to get taken into consideration. But I want to finish with why I even started this topic today and and had this discussion with you today. I think the window to do this affordably is closing. I think there is a massive amount of people doing this right now, and I think a lot of the more desirable places to live are continuing to go up in price, and I don't think they're going to get any cheaper. Real estate is not as scarce as gold or Bitcoin, but land does share a commonality with with both of them. There is what there is, and they're not making any more. And I'm starting to see the boom glut bust occur in real estate with raw land. I have watched, because I've been looking to buy a big piece of land, 50-ish acres, kind of a rec bug-out location, recreational property, et cetera, hunting, fishing. And I have watched that type of property within three hours of me drop by 30 to 40% over the last well, pretty much through the summer. I've watched it slowly drop. At the same time, I've watched that kind of property drop. And if that's what you want, fine. We're talking raw land, no structures, no buildings, no nothing. Building from the ground up. At the same time, I have watched residential properties continue to increase at almost the rate the raw land has gone down. Now, I'm not talking about high-level, you know, high-quality farmland or grazing land here. I'm talking about real raw wooded land, right? Um, That is a bad sign if you want to buy a house. That means that the housing costs are remaining stable 
while underlying land costs are in decline. And that's because there's so many people doing this now. And COVID, and I wrote an article about this over a year ago, and I said that this would happen. Uh, it's on the website if you want to just go there and I think I called it the crash or something like that. There was a series of articles, but just put real estate in, you'll probably find it at the survivalpodcast.com. And I said this was going to happen, that this had to happen, that when this, because remember how much better I said working remote is? That when this Pandora box opened with COVID, there would be people who would do their job remotely and figure that out. And that companies would figure out that all the fears that they had, that if you let people work remotely, they won't do their job or whatever, most of those employers, those fears would vanish because we've learned time and time again, every company that's implemented this type of work policy, you get more, not less production out of your employees. Now, it's highly possible that you're paying them for eight hours and they're giving you six. But you don't really care about that unless you're a moron or an egotistical idiot You're not worried about that principle. You're worried about what's my productivity and my output from this individual. And if, if I can pay somebody a salary and they give me more work by letting them work from home, I don't give a shit if they work four hours and hire somebody over in India to do half their job. I don't care. All I care is what do I get in return. And what companies have figured out is not only do I get a shitload in return, but some of these companies have taken $30, $50 million dollars or more of expenses off their balance sheet by vacating buildings. Um, I can't think of the company now off the top of my head, but it was some tech company, a uh, really big one, tons of people use it, kind of like Etsy, but it wasn't Etsy, uh, something like that. Uh, maybe it was social media, but it was $50 million dollars a year that they were able to save, and they basically just walked a lease and paid a penalty of something like $25 million and said, we're ahead. We're ahead giving them $25 million and walking away because in our first year, it's going to save us $50 million. And when that type of thing happens, you find out a lot of people that claim they love living in San Francisco while people shit in the streets, etc., don't really love living there. What you have is justification of a lifestyle decision that was made for employment, and then we pretend that we like a thing that we don't. It happens all the time. When I was a little kid, uh, one of the things that hit the military surplus market uh, was the Mickey Mouse blow-up boots. If anybody's ever seen those, you look like a moron in them. They were, came out of Vietnam and Korea, I guess. And uh, a lot of guys went out and bought them. They all said they kept their feet really, really warm because once they put their money into them, they had to justify a dumb decision. They didn't work. That's so why the military stopped using them. They didn't keep your feet warm, and they made you look like a moron, and they cost a bunch of money. Now, that's that's a stone-cold reality that people will justify things. So I think there's a lot of people live in L.A., a lot of people live in San Francisco, a lot of people live in New York, etc. They made that decision because they got a job, and then they start talking about how it's so amazing. And this is true of a lot of college towns and stuff as well. People get a job there, and then they... They dote on the place. They don't really care about the place. They claim to. And what happened when we did this was a great revealing of what people really thought of where they lived. And that's why there was a time last year where there were people showing videos of people living in New York and surrounding bur uh, boroughs. And it looked like convoys of U-Haul and rider trucks. Convoys headed out. And 
the point of that isn't, oh, look how bad New York and L.A. and San Francisco suck. We all know they suck. Portland sucks. Seattle sucks, etc. The point is when that many people leave places of high population density like that, and they go out and they seek everything from a three-bedroom, two-bath with a yard the kids can actually play in, um, to you know more rural properties like I live on a three-acre property, urban rural fringe. There's only so many of those available. And then you get aggravating circumstances, companies like BlackRock going into the most desirable locations and buying everything they can sight unseen and going into the real estate landlord business in spite of the fact that right now it's hard to evict somebody, if not impossible. But they're not buying the kind of properties that people don't pay their bills for, and they're bringing tenants in now. They're not worried about tenants that have been living there for 10 years. And so that puts pressure. And what we end up with is a limited inventory that cannot simply be expanded. It's, it's, it's not completely inelastic. We can build more houses. We can clear more land, etc. But we can't do it the way we can, say, make more TV sets. We can't just, like, you know, hire a couple more slave laborers, throw them into the factory, and make the freaking conveyor belt run faster. We can't just buy some new robots that assemble the TVs. Like, when we talk about building properties... And with all the laborious new regulations that keep being added onto the construction industry, the average new home from the time they actually break ground till they put it out and you can buy it and move in is six months to a year at this point. And I remember when production homes were being built in less than 90 days here in Texas. Like you could, like during the housing boom down here and the construction boom, you could go in, look at a model house, pick out your freaking colors and shit like that, and within three months or less, move into the place when you it picked your lot, and boom. And that is just not the case anymore. And it's not going to be the case. There's not going to be less regulation. So if you want to do this, I've spent a little extra time here at the end, lighting a fire under your ass. The time to do it is now. The time to do it was five years ago. The next best time is tomorrow to start working on it. And, you know, five years from now, I'll probably tell you it would have been better to do it five years ago. It's probably still worth doing, but it's going to be harder and more expensive. Hi, guys. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 153. Today we are talking about Bitcoin, and we're going to be talking specifically about 20 things that most people don't know about Bitcoin. Uh, it could also be called 20 myths, so I don't know if all of them would fall into myths, because some of the things that people don't know, they also think they know the exact opposite, or they think they know something that's not true in that regard, and this is a correction to that belief. So here we go. We will go fast since there are 20 of them today. Uh, number one, you often hear people say Bitcoin is backed by nothing. This is nonsense. Bitcoin is backed by security, technology, and energy. But the primary thing that actually backs Bitcoin is security. Technology is the means by which that security is provided, and energy is the fuel by which that, that security is provided. And what I mean by that is if I send Bill a Bitcoin, Bill knows that that Bitcoin is, in fact, a Bitcoin. We can't double spend it. I can't cut and paste and make more Bitcoins. There is absolute security. And then once Bill has that Bitcoin, as long as he doesn't give up his private keys to anybody else, there's literally no way anybody can take that away from Bill. Bill can go anywhere in the world and have access to it. Bill can go anywhere in the world and send it to any other place in the world 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. 
that's that's what backs Bitcoin, guys. It's it's not backed by uh, you know ether or you know smoke or whatever. It's backed by security enabled by technology powered by energy, and it is a digital asset in that respect. And so when somebody tells you Bitcoin is backed by nothing, they literally know nothing about Bitcoin. You can't say that if you understand anything about how Bitcoin actually works. Two, Bitcoin is not bad for the environment. Um, when you say Bitcoin's bad for the environment, you're saying electricity is bad for the environment, and you're making no differential between where any of the electricity comes from. The same people saying this have uh, 5,000 square foot houses or larger, Mr. Musk, and are spending you know thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a month on electric bills, some of these people. I wonder what Elon Musk's electric bill is in spite of the fact that he's so involved with alternative energy. I bet you he's not 100% off-grid in his giant mansions, right? Um, Bitcoin is as good or bad for the environment as the electrical source that happens to use. Bitcoin is actually able to help deploy um, new power generation operations because most places where you generate power, I don't care if you do it with coal, oil, gas, solar, wind, geothermal, it doesn't matter what you make the power with. Um, when you generate um, power and then you have to take it from the point that you generate it and deliver it to the customers, you have an inherent loss of about 30% of the energy produced. And again, it doesn't matter where you do it. Uh, though the further away you are from your customers, the more that number grows. And it doesn't matter how you produce that energy. By taking something like a Bitcoin mining operation, we can now deploy into areas where we would never have been able to afford to develop electrical generation, including alternative energy. That's just one example. You want to know what the biggest energy loss is of any currency in the world? It's the United States dollar, because it takes the United States military, which is the largest single user of energy in the world, to maintain the dollar. There is, it's, just, it's just nonsense. It's FUD. It's crap. It's not real. Bitcoin is as clean as the energy you use to turn the lights on in your home. And the more we develop alternative energy, the more miners will use it. And it's an incentive to develop alternative energy. Um, two, or three, Bitcoin becomes more intrinsically valuable over time. Most people don't get this. They're the same people that say it's backed by nothing. As soon as you understand it's backed by security and technology powered by energy, you realize that the more people that participate, the greater the security that you have. And the better the technology becomes, the better the backing is. So Bitcoin is more valuable today than it was when it started, not just in dollars as far as how it trades on the open market. Bitcoin is more valuable today because it's more secure today. It's more proven today. It's more robust today. It has more multi-layer solutions today. There have been people working on making Bitcoin better for the last 12 years. Some of them are people like MIT professors. So every year, in fact, every day, the overall value of Bitcoin, not the token or the coin, but Bitcoin, the network, which is actually where the value backing comes from, gets better. And since it gets better, it has more inherent value. Every time somebody says, I'm going to own Bitcoin, I'm going to hold Bitcoin, but I'm not going to use a light wallet, I'm going to run a node, and then downloads the software onto their computer and begins running a Bitcoin node, the network becomes more robust and more secure. Every time somebody starts mining, it becomes more robust and more secure. And that is where the inherent underlying value comes from, the technology, the security, and the energy powering the network. 
Uh, next, four, four and five I'm going to do together. Bitcoin transactions are not expensive. And number five, Bitcoin transactions are not slow. Let's look at a native Bitcoin transaction first before we even talk about something called the Lightning Network. Okay, On a native Bitcoin transaction, there is a fee. That's how miners get compensated. They don't just mine new Bitcoin. There's a fee for the transaction. That fee compared to, let's say, somebody in Japan or somebody in... Let's look at a country where this kind of happens all the time. Somebody in, in, in Venezuela that has a family here in America working and sending money back to them, it will cost that person about 50% to use Western Union, 40% to 50%. And it will take quite a while for the transaction to go through. That transaction can be done with Bitcoin, even a native Bitcoin transaction for far less than that. I mean, that transaction fee is going to vary. But, I mean, to put it in perspective... I withdrew a significant amount of Bitcoin off an exchange today. The transaction took 10 minutes, and it cost me about $5. The transaction, I'm not going to say how much it was, but it was over $1,000. That's neither expensive nor slow, 10 minutes. Because let's look at the slow thing. So you go into Starbucks, you take your uh, MasterCard, and you swipe your MasterCard, and then you leave with your scone and your overpriced coffee. And you think, well, that was an instantaneous transaction. The final settlement of that transaction between the banks on the back end will take 72 hours. Bitcoin will take around 10 minutes to 30 minutes at the, at the longest when it's the slowest of the network runs. So when we compare this to actual financial networks, it's neither expensive nor slow. If we add in the Lightning Network, and you cannot discuss this at all, honestly, without talking about the Lightning Network... We can send a couple dollars worth of Bitcoin for about one penny, and it's instantaneous to the user. Yes, it's a side chain. Yes, it's my third party, but so is using a light wallet. So is using the Internet. Uh, but the thing about the third parties inside the Lightning Network, they never know who you are. They don't know who you are, what you're buying, where you're coming from. There's actually more privacy in Lightning. So Lightning is fast, cheap, and it is more private. And anybody that has Bitcoin can use the Lightning Network simply by using a Lightning Wallet. It's, it's that simple. You can use other kind of like full-blown services like Strike, but you don't have to. So we can make it incredibly cheap and incredibly fast, or even if we leave it kind of native, if you want to put it that way, it's still faster and less expensive when you're talking about moving any significant amount of money anywhere in the world. In fact, you can move money to places you could never even move the money through conventional channels. Um, next up. Bitcoins are not held in accounts unless you're stupid, okay? I keep hearing people, well, my Bitcoin account, or saying, you know, like, they're going to make you give them the password to your Bitcoin account. If you're holding Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other cryptocurrency in a wallet, you do not have an account. There is no need to have an account record. An account means that your name's on it. An account means that it's linked to your social security number and your address and your driver's license and all that. You can go download a wallet right now. Somebody can send you Bitcoin, and it's about as anonymous as it really gets if you do it that way. Now, where they got the Bitcoin from, that may change the calculus on being able to track it up to that point. Sure, it's a public blockchain. It's not a privacy coin. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is there's no such thing as an account unless you go to someplace like Coinbase to buy Bitcoin. When you do that, if you're smart, once you bought it, you don't leave it there in that account. 
right? It's in a wallet that they have custody of. That's a custodial wallet. Someone else maintains custody over your asset. This is dumb. You don't do this. You get a wallet and you transfer it off the exchange into your wallet where you have complete control over it that is based on what's known as a public and a private key. You have no need to attach yourself to that information whatsoever. There is no account. There's nothing to give anybody a password to. They can't make you do it, and you can go anywhere in the world, and as long as you retain those two pieces of information, public and private key, or something called the seed phrase, you can make your money appear at will anywhere in the world while there's nothing on you that says you have any money. That is not how anything that is called an account works. Try to do that with a bank account and move your money overseas and see what happens. Bitcoin, tra Bitcoins do not have accounts. Exchanges have accounts. And that's really important because of the next one. Number seven. Bitcoin has never, 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 I'm sorry, never, ever, 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 ever been hacked. That's not a thing. It's bullshit. It's nonsense. Well, Mt. Gox got hacked. What did I just tell you? There's no such thing as a Bitcoin account. You can hold Bitcoin on an exchange account. You got it? Bitcoin didn't get hacked. Mt. Gox, the exchange, got hacked. This is one of many reasons we do not hold Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency long-term on an exchange. We hold it in a wallet where we maintain our own keys, i.e. not your keys, not your coins. If you're holding on an exchange where you do not hold your own keys, you do not have Bitcoin. They have Bitcoin and, it rep and they represent you and hold it for you. This is why you remove it. But if you hold Bitcoin in a wallet, unless you give away that highly confidential information, your Bitcoin is as secure as, it's more secure, I would say, than the Golden Fort Knox. Because at least they can drop a bomb on Fort Knox. And maybe it'll go through. I don't know. I know this. If you take, if you have Bitcoin on your, you know, a white wallet on your cell phone, and you throw your phone up near and blow it out of there with a shotgun, your Bitcoin still exists. As long as you have that seed phrase or that public and private key, you can control it from anywhere in the world. It has never been hacked, ever. Anybody that tells you Bitcoin has been hacked is either stupid, lying, or both. I'm sorry. Uh, next up, Bitcoin is in no way a Ponzi scheme. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard anybody say about Bitcoin. And one either has to either not have any understanding of how Bitcoin works or no understanding of what a Ponzi scheme is. The basic logic these morons uh, pour out is that, well, if nobody buys Bitcoin anymore, it'll go to zero. So tell me an asset class in the world, a commodity, a security, I don't care what it is that that's not true about. If everybody decides they don't like gold anymore and they don't buy gold anymore, it will be worthless. That doesn't make gold a Ponzi scheme. I know what you're going to say, but gold's never been worthless. It has, before we decided to turn it into money. There was a time in history, not actually that long ago as far as all of human history, that if you had a chunk of gold, somebody said, big freaking whoop, or oh, whatever language they used at the time, right? Gold has a multi-thousand-year history of being a currency. It's great. It's not going to go to zero. I agree. Neither is Bitcoin, because the intrinsic inherent value of the technology, along with the security, continues to grow. 
Okay? But even if it did go to zero, even if everybody did change their mind, that does not make something a Ponzi scheme. If that's true, then pork bellies are a Ponzi scheme. Natural gas is a Ponzi scheme. Oil is a Ponzi scheme. Every single commodity, every th single security, every single ETF that trades anywhere is also a Ponzi scheme. Bitcoin trades on an open market that has its own price discovery mechanism of what buyers are willing to sell for and uh, buyers are willing to pay for and sellers are willing to sell for like every other commodity out there. Anyone that says it's a Ponzi scheme needs to figure out what a Ponzi scheme actually is. Go look out how Bernie Madoff ran a Ponzi scheme. The way a Ponzi scheme works is you give me money, and I say I invested it for you, but I don't. I spend it, right, and I issue a fake statement of account. And then I got to get another stupid ass to come in and put money into it. And that way, if you want to withdraw, I can give you some of his money. So I'm building a slush fund to cover withdrawals, But I'm not investing the money. That's a Ponzi scheme, guys. That's not an openly traded asset of any type. I'm sorry. Bitcoin is also not helpful to the government's desire for a central bank digital currency. You people that keep telling this, this nonsensical lie, like, have you ever even considered what you're saying? Or in the words of Stewie Griffith, do you, do you hear the words that come out of your mouth? Do you? Because what you're saying is, By having a completely independent, totally secure, completely decentralized option for digital currency, it makes it easier for the banking system to create a centralized digital currency and get rid of cash. This is dumb. Let's imagine a world where Bitcoin was never created. It's 2021 just like it is now. And the central bank decides that it's time to go digital with the dollar. What do they do? They shut down the mint. They stop producing cash and coinage. They ban its use over a period of, let's say, five years, and they start issuing all the money digitally, just like 97% of the money is issued now. Okay, done. Now, what are you going to do about it? You have a big box full of cash somewhere. What are you going to do? You're going to have to convert it into what? The new central bank digital currency. Bitcoin exists. Guess what? Deals off. I have another option. And it's not just Bitcoin, it would be all crypto then. If I want privacy, I can go into R. If I want privacy, I can go into Monero. If I want kind of flexibility for smart contracts and DeFi, I can do something in the Ethereum network. If I just want the best, hardest money that exists right now, whether you believe it or not, I can buy Bitcoin. I can go buy that Bitcoin privately with that cash. I can deposit that cash before the time's up and do it above board. I have lots of options. Without Bitcoin, I have no options. Without crypto, I have no options. The crypto industry is the biggest threat to being able to standardize a central bank digital currency that could ever have existed. All you have to do is think. All you have to do is use the three pounds of gray matter in your, in your head. You know that stuff that's behind your freaking big old cranium? Just use that for 10 seconds and think about the implications of having a private, decentralized monetary system if the goal is a centralized government-controlled monetary system. You don't want the other option to exist, but it does. And we'll get to more on that in a bit. Buying and holding Bitcoin does not create any tax obligations. Until you sell it or spend it, there is no tax, no matter how high it goes. This is um, number 10 in our 20-item list. People think, well, I, if, if you go buy Bitcoin, and, it go, and you buy Bitcoin, let's say, when it was $10,000, And now it's $40,000. You bought one Bitcoin. You owe tax on $30,000. No, it works like any asset that you buy and hold. That's what the IRS said. They didn't want to call it a currency. 
they created the situation that was most beneficial to them, but they also created a situation that, when you understand it, is very beneficial to us. You can buy and hold and grow the value of Bitcoin, and you don't pay taxes until you sell it, and when you sell it, you only pay tax on what you sell. So if I have a million dollars worth of Bitcoin that started out as $10,000 years and years ago, and I go out and sell $50,000 worth, I only pay tax on the gain portion of the $50,000. Likewise, if I am a long-term hodler, and I build up my Bitcoin portfolio over time using things like DeFi, I can then borrow against my own Bitcoin, pay it back with a future loan, and as long as we have reasonable appreciation of the Bitcoin value, I can do that for almost ever, never actually have my Bitcoin balance go down, and never pay a dime of taxes, because there's no tax on debt. That's one strategy of many that actually maximizes this factor of Bitcoin. But people are worried they're going to pay taxes on something when they're talking about investing 500 bucks. Good Lord. Sorry, no. It's not a tax obligation until you exchange it. Next up, you do not have to be rich to invest in Bitcoin. I almost eye-rolled myself into an alternative dimension the first time I was told this. Only rich people can afford to buy Bitcoin. What the ever-loving F are you talking about? And it was back during the last all-time high. You know, it was like a $60,000 of Bitcoin. I don't have $60,000. You can go buy $100 worth of Bitcoin. You can go buy $50 worth of Bitcoin. It fractions into something called Satoshis. A single Satoshi is a fraction of a penny. Anybody at any level can start investing in Bitcoin tomorrow. If, you have, if you're in the United States and you have to do KYC to buy it with cash, as long as you have a bank account, a state-issued ID, and you don't live in a stupid state that says you're not allowed to do it or whatever, then you can start buying Bitcoin tomorrow in, in increments as small as 25 bucks if you want to. It's a nonsensical argument. It doesn't even make any sense. I honestly don't even know where it comes from. I think you have to be exceptionally stupid to believe that. Next up, Bitcoin is a bad solution for illegal activities at any meaningful scale. One of Bitcoin's actual weaknesses, in my opinion, is that it is not a completely private cryptocurrency. It is a public ledger. And even if you don't know who's attached to the address, once Bitcoin goes to an address, you know which Bitcoins, because every single Satoshi is unique. Every single Bitcoin, every single fraction of a Bitcoin is unique. It has a unique identifier. And what happens is all the above-board exchanges, when a cryptocurrency is used for something like ransomware or illegal activity, and it's identified as such, they, put a, they basically put a black ball on it and say, you can't exchange it with us. And then all the law enforcement watches that account to see anywhere that shit moves, and it's bad news. If you want to do illicit activity, the number one currency used to do that with today, it's not a cryptocurrency. It's United States $100 Benjamin Franklin's. That's the number one currency used by, by organized and illegal, uh, illegal activity crime in the world, is the American $100 bill. If you did want to use cryptocurrency, you'd use something like Monero, because it's private. So this idea that Bitcoin is only used for child trafficking or something is absolutely stupid. And anybody with any brains at all that wanted to use a crypto for illicit activity would not choose Bitcoin. You have to be absolutely flaming stupid to do that. But that doesn't prevent your government from lying about it. And it doesn't prevent all the old sons of bitches in our Congress who don't know the square root of F all about Bitcoin from believing it. So there you go on that one. It's just not true. Um... Next, 13, Bitcoin code has been audited 
by tens of thousands of independent programmers. Anybody can download all the code for Bitcoin and look at every single line of it. You know what that tells you? I don't know where you people get this bullshit, but it's not a CIA trap. You can't have code that is completely open to some of the smartest programmers on the planet who are able to pick it apart. And there are people, guys. There are coders and programmers that live to find anything that they can criticize in a code base. They live for it. That is their thing. That is what makes them famous. That's what gets their, you know, their little special handle recognized as a super uber hacker or whatever. You have had these people for 12 years able to analyze every freaking line of the code. If there was a phone home to the CIA line of code in there, it would have been found by now. And whatever this trap is you believe in would have been sprung long ago because the government's not a fan of this stuff. It really isn't. 14. Governments banning Bitcoin, though, is not doable. This is also stupid. We, just think of what you've learned in this video, if you're new to Bitcoin already, about how Bitcoin works. How does it work? Numbers and math are used so that I can send information across the Internet from me to you. You're going to ban that? Really? Are you really Now, let's ignore the fact that right now we have countless billionaires who are currently lobbying the United States government who benefit from cryptocurrency, and the industry keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Let's ignore the fact that right now, based on market capital value, Bitcoin is the ninth largest currency in the world, and that includes the U.S. dollar, etc. Only eight countries now have more value in their currency based on dollar market cap than Bitcoin does. Okay, let's ignore all that. How are you going to ban the sending of ones and zeros? How are you going to do that? Good freaking luck with it, right? Good freaking luck. Right now, we have all kinds of raw materials imported from all over the world to the United States to make drugs. And then those materials are, are processed, made into illegal drugs, and sold all over the country. And every cop and their brothers out looking to bust people for it, and you can't shut down the physical movement of illicit drugs through the country, but you're going to shut down ones and zeros. What this leads to is a place where the government starts looking at it. And these recent regulations, they do need clarification. I do hope they come. It will make things better if they do it. But when the government actually starts to see crypto is a source of tax revenue, it becomes valuable to government, and government starts acting protectionist with it. And these people in government don't know what they're doing. They don't understand it. That's why you have idiots like the simpleton Elizabeth Warren recently saying, crypto could be good, but there could also be a run on crypto and it could need a government bailout. I'm not even going to explain why that's stupid. If you don't get why that's stupid, I don't know how you've hung into this video for this long. Uh, next up, the majority of Bitcoin does not come from China. Almost none of it does now since China banned Bitcoin again, specifically mining. But you know what happened? When China banned Bitcoin mining, all the miners packed up all their shit, mailed it to another country, hooked it back up, and built new freaking farms and started mining Bitcoin again. There you go. That's all that happened. If, if China did produce most of the Bitcoin, it wouldn't even matter. The country that actually has the most Bitcoin mining right now, United States of America, because in many markets we have really cheap energy, some of it highly renewable. If I was going to build a Bitcoin mining farm right now, In the United States, I'd probably, as much as I hate the state's government, I'd probably go do it in Washington because by making special deals, I can get hydroelectric power for about four cents a kilowatt if I properly locate 
my farm and I properly do the deal with the power generation company because right now it's power they're losing. So it, it doesn't really matter where most of the Bitcoin comes from because anybody anywhere can set up a computer and start mining Bitcoin tomorrow. It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with how Bitcoin works. Bitcoin is governed by its code, not the location of its miners. I'm sorry, guys. That's just the way it works. Next, even if Bitcoin, because somebody will tell me Bitcoin, if it gets too expensive, there's no way it can be usable anymore. If Bitcoin went to $10 million of Bitcoin, Here's a couple things that are going to happen. Number one, I'm going to post a video of myself dancing naked on my roof. That's one thing that's going to happen. But the other thing that's going to happen is you're still going to be able to make transactions as low as the value of a single U.S. dime. You have to go to $10 million for a Satoshi to be worth a dime. You have to go to $1 million for a Satoshi, a single unit that makes up Bitcoin, to be worth a penny. Almost like that was the plan all along or something. That's the reason for the 21 million, because when we divide it with nine decimals, we get to a penny per Satoshi at a million dollars. Almost like that's a plan or something. I'm not saying Bitcoin's going to go to a million or 10 million. I actually think at some point in, 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 you know, kind of the near future, we're talking five years, 10 years, Bitcoin will cross the million dollar threshold. But at that price, it, there's nothing about it that makes it impossible for you to buy your scone and your coffee. Though most people are not going to buy a scone and a coffee with Bitcoin. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, next up, um, Bitcoin can be borrowed against for extremely low interest rates for tax-free retirement income. I kind of covered that already, so I'll go real quick through it for you. But you don't have to sell your Bitcoin to generate a retirement cash flow income with it. If you invest wisely, stack sats, etc., retire with four or five million dollars worth of Bitcoin, you can give yourself a cash flow of about $150,000 in your first year of retirement. If Bitcoin does 10% as good as it's done up till now, you can do that infinitely until you die. You can have 30 years of retirement that way. You'll die and you'll owe about 65% of the value against your Bitcoin. Your heirs can continue that until it runs out or they can cash out, pay it, and take the balance and do whatever they want with it. And that's... Who's saying... There's some idiot on there saying a billion coins bullshit. There's no billion coins, dude. No one said there was a billion coins. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, anyway, um, that that's the truth. And that is actually going to lead to greater stability in the price of Bitcoin. The less people are willing to sell, the more upward pressure we have and the more educated people become about the long-term future and the tax implications of exit, the less likely they are to sell and the more they are likely to use creative solutions that lock that Bitcoin and do not allow it to trade freely. This is good for stability. And it's the counter-response to government saying it's an asset, not a currency. If it was a currency, more people would spend it. We'll get that in point 20. Um, Bitcoin, I'm sorry, new technology for Bitcoin is being developed daily. This is also important. It ties back into where the backing comes from and why it's more intrinsically valuable. Lightning is a network that's been built, I talked about that already, for about three years now. We, again, we've got people all over the world making that second layer of technology better. We're now developing what's called layer three technology for Bitcoin so that Bitcoin can do all the fancy shit like Uh, decentralized finance and stuff that everybody talks about Ethereum doing and do it as the hardest money there is. There will always be an upgrade to the technology. You don't have to upgrade the underlying Bitcoin network to upgrade the technology. 
And this is where people get really stuck because since they think of Bitcoin as technology rather than a network that is powered by people in many ways, okay, what they think is, well, since it's the first one, it can't be the best one and somebody's going to make a better one and it's going to surplant it. The reality is if you look at, for instance, just market cap, the closest thing to Bitcoin and market cap is Ethereum, and it's not even a third of the market cap of Bitcoin. That market cap is representative of holders, but it's all representative, again, miners who verify and secure transactions. And every time we increase the value of the supporting technology, the technology that works around Bitcoin, this is where we get to the concept that Bitcoin is digital gold. Digital gold does not mean it replaces gold. Digital gold means in a financial system it can act the way that a hard asset like gold can and that all of these things can exist backed by it. Right? That might be a little high level for today and we do need to wrap up. But just understand, new technology that makes Bitcoin more usable and able to do more things is being developed every day by people from coders and garages, again, to MIT professors. Next, the amount of new Bitcoin is cut in half roughly every four years. This is what we call the halving. This is what creates absolute scarcity over time. So over time, the absolute scarcity will limit us to 21 billion Bitcoins. Most people, especially those listening to the live stream, know this. You're aware of this. What I don't think most people do, though, is the math. And say, well, what does that mean? Given that we have like another 20 years of Bitcoin being, you know, mined before it runs out and it goes to only transaction fees. What does that mean for how much Bitcoin is being produced every day, every year, every five years, etc.? Uh, again, more than 18 million have already been produced. Uh, at this point in 2021, the approximate number of new Bitcoins that will be mined starting January 1 and ending December 31st is 328,500 Bitcoins. That's not very many. Think about that. We have well over a million users a month setting up their first Bitcoin wallet and buying their first Bitcoin. The plebs, and it's not a bad word or anything, it's not derogatory, it's just somebody new to Bitcoin. The plebs are taking power from the whales. The whales are exiting positions, making profits, reinvesting, and the plebs are buying anything that they can get. Again, we're growing by a million new Bitcoiners a month, and we're producing 380,000 and change Bitcoin a year. By the way, in 2024, that number will go in half again to around 180,000. And four years later, it will go in half again to 90,000. Do you get that? I mean, it's really important that you understand that if you're going to understand what I'm talking about when I say it's an absolute hard cap and that the, the new supply continues to decline by design. It's hard-coded into the system. You can't change it. It would require more than 51% of people that use mine and work with Bitcoin. You're talking millions of people all agree we want to change it. When everybody's agreed for 12 years these rules work. It's not happening. Next, um, and the last one. The real reason Bitcoin isn't spent, everybody says, well, nobody wants to spend it because it goes up in value, right? That's bullshit. That's, that's not why. Um, since people hold so little of their net worth in Bitcoin relative to their total net worth, and they're kind of, a lot of people do come in brand new and they're betting on it, going to the moon, buying Lamborghinis, whatever, I understand that. There is some truth to it. It does create savers because that's what deflationary currencies create. But the reason that people don't spend it are two things. One, we've already covered heavily today, tax implications. When I spend that Bitcoin, I realize a gain, I pay a tax, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give the government some of my wealth. 
But the, the bigger reason is we don't earn Bitcoin. We don't get paid in Bitcoin. If I immediately started paying you a salary, let's say you make 60 grand a year, five, uh, five grand a month, and you came to work for me and I said, I'm going to pay you five grand a month in Bitcoin. You're going to spend Bitcoin for all the shit you spend cash on right now on a monthly roll. And then whatever is left will go into your midterm or long-term savings. And if you're smart, honest to God, you would convert your midterm savings into U.S. dollars. That's your stuff that if the transmission goes out in the car, you might have to spend that money next week, or you might not spend it till next month, or you might not spend it till next year, but it's that emergency money. That's the middle bucket. The long-term bucket, yes, there's a huge incentive to hold on to Bitcoin because its past performance looks really good for future results. Like any security or asset class that's had a great run for over a decade. But the big reason is because people aren't paid in it. Again, if you start paying people in Bitcoin, they'll start transacting in Bitcoin because there's a certain amount of things that they have to buy every year. People don't actually want to spend their dollars either. But you need stuff. And the reason you spend dollars instead of Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else is because what you're paid in, and it's what the government collects taxes in. Anyway... 20 things most people don't know about Bitcoin. Now you probably know a lot more than the average person. Real quick before I wrap up on the podcast, Tyler Durden, which is I'm sure a pseudonym, says having as little to do with the price at this point, though, I agree. I agree. We'll talk about that in the after show. With that, I'm going to wrap up the podcast. I'll be back tomorrow. We're going to be talking about reloading on Miyagi Mornings tomorrow. Well, hi, guys and gals. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, 154 episodes now. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about reloading, but specifically shot shell reloading. And I want to say out of the gate, if you're like, screw Jack, I don't want to do shotguns, but I want to start reloading, um, starting a reload with one or two rifle or pistol calibers, it's fine too. But I'm going to tell you why... If someone came to me today and said, I've never reloaded anything in my life, and right now in 2021, with supply issues where they are, I want to start reloading, I'd highly suggest the shotgun. And I have a bunch of reasons for this, but what I want to start out with initially is how cheap it is to get started. I would highly recommend that unless you are going to seriously reload a lot of ammunition, uh, where you're like, if you're going to be like a competition skeet shooter or just a real heavy hobbyist and you're going to be out blowing through 300 rounds a week or something year round, then you might look at like a, a, a mech uh, progressive reloader or something like that and you're looking in a $300 range. If you just want to get started, I wouldn't even look at anything other than the Lee. Load all two, as long as you want to reload 12-gauge, 20-gauge, or 16-gauge, because that's all they make it. And it, I think it's really sad that they don't make that tool in a 410, because 410 is stupid expensive to buy. Um, Mac makes a really good 410 uh, progressive press. costs about 300 bucks. If you shoot a lot of 410, most people don't. It'll pay for itself real quick, because a box 410 is just stupid expensive. But most people... You know, what you're going to find, I think Dave, Dave Canterbury says it's like you can find it every every outhouse, you know, shed, uh, you know, uh, every home, etc. is 12-gauge. So that's what most people are going to reload. And I'd say number two is going to be 20, and, and there are a lot of people who are fans of the 16. I'm actually a big fan of the 16 as a, uh, as a wing shooter, but most are going to reload the 12-gauge. And I, I just want to start out with, there's links in the video notes today 
of all this gear that I'm talking about, or most of it anyway. If you get a Lee Lodol tool, uh, Lee Lodol 2 to start loading shot shells, other than components, you have everything you need. When you're reloading shotguns, you have what are called bushings. You have shot bushings and powder bushings. And that sounds really fancy. All they are is a fixed cavity. So you have a, a reservoir that holds powder and a reservoir that holds shot. And there's a charging bar, and you switch it between whichever one you're doing at the time. And what happens is when you go to use that tool, it fills up that cavity. And then that drops down out of that cavity into the shell. So, so you drop down your powder, you put in a wad, you drop down your shot, and then you crimp it closed. This is a basic procedure. Well, that fixed cavity, if you want to load one and an eighth ounces of shot, well, there's a bushing to do that. And those bushings are expensive. And when you go out and you buy a lot of these other tools, you either have to buy bushings or a lot of times they have what's called a charging bar. And that bar is expensive. Some of those systems, the bar is almost as expensive as the entire Lee Lodol tool. I keep saying tool, two, the Lee Lodol two. Um, and then you have to buy a new one for every different load you want to do. I think the Lodol two, finally said it right, comes with 28 bushings. 28 bushings. There's, there's pretty much nothing you're going to want to load that you can't load with the Lodol tool. So what's since it's cheap, what's the, what's the trade-off? It's slower, but... If you want to load a couple boxes of shells here and there, it's not slow enough that you're going to care. And there's tons of videos using it. And I even have a couple videos for you on some of the other features that it has uh, that are in the video notes for you to check out. Uh, next, I just want to talk about how flexible the shotgun is itself, right? We can hunt anything from freaking grizzly bears to snipe with a shotgun. Did you, did you think I was kidding you when I said snipe? There's actually a bird called a snipe. It's actually a game bird. It's actually a federally protected migratory game bird like a dove or a duck is. Um, but, yeah, they're real. And they're really little. They're really little. No, you don't stand around in a sack, guys, trying to get them in the middle of the night while somebody makes noise in the background. Um, that is a gimmick in a game. I always found that interesting, though, that people would take people snipe hunting. Uh, and then when you try to tell people there actually is a game bird called a snipe, they don't believe you. Snipe's about the size of a woodcock. If you've ever seen one of those, they're also a game bird. I mean, you're talking about little birds, quail, uh, especially some of the quail that we uh, that we hunt. I mean, these are small birds. So you go out and you take your 3006 and you try to shoot yourself a snipe or a squirrel or something, you got nothing left. But we can take that shotgun just by changing ammo, and I mean really quick swapping out ammo, and we can hunt any big game, any small game, and if, if you don't think the shotgun is an effective self-defense tool, you're just in denial of reality, I promise you that somebody breaks in your house, even if you're just talking a, a field-grade loaded number six squirrel shot, you shoot somebody in the grun with that, uh, they're probably going to stop doing whatever it is they're doing that you don't want them to be doing. Um, I personally find number four buck probably to be the best all-around home defense uh, option for... for uh, for folks to use for a shotgun, but my point is the flexibility. And if you learn how to load for a shotgun, you can load into that flexibility and do just about anything with it. Next, components tend to be cheap as well, and especially 
uh, shotgun shells uh, that have been once fired. You can go to ranges and stuff and pick up brass and what have you, but if you are a precision reloader of rifles, then you know that it is kind of important that that load you develop is developed with a certain case, and all shotguns, that doesn't matter. And I've gone out to, like, a skeet range or a sporting clays range and just set buckets out and told other shooters, if y'all don't want your, your empties, just throw them in the bucket. I've left with two full five-gallon buckets of shells that way, just going out shooting on a weekend for a couple hours, uh, not counting my own. So, I mean, getting, getting free uh, shot shell casings is cheap. Also, I'm going to say availability tends to be a little bit better um, than some other things. Right now, it's actually interesting. All of a sudden, you can get some of the small rifle and small pistol and large rifle primers, though large rifle magnum primers still seem to be hard to find online. And you can't seem to find a lot of 209 shot shell primers, which is the primers you need to reload your shotgun shells online. However, and like Bass Pro, Cabela's, all that stuff, not available, not in stock on the website. However, when I go to my local Bass Pro or local Cabela's or local shooting range or whatever that sells components, they all have 209 primers. They're not even hard to come by in the real world. They just seem to be hard to come by for me anyway in the online world. And uh, Chris says my shirt's badass. Yeah, this is from John Willis over at SOE. Uh, it was just the next one in the closet. Guy just keeps sending them to me, so I keep wearing them for him. Uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, I've been able to get 209 primers, and I've not, through all this shit with the shortage, ever found it hard to get uh, shot, which is the you know the, the bir from bird shot to buck and everything in between, 25-pound bags of it, as much as you want. Uh, shotgun powders have not been hard for me to find, and waddings have not been hard for me to find. I have to say, even with reloading centerfire, It's only been the primers that have been hard for me to get. I don't know if everybody else has had that experience, but that's what's been hard for me. But with again, with the shotgun, I do seem to feel that we have, in the real world stores, brick and mortar, more availability of components during shortages. So that's nice to know. Now what I would do to mitigate all this is if you get a load-all or any shotgun loading equipment, when you're at a store, since you know flat out it's powder, and primers that tend to dry up. And since if they're stored properly, they last damn near forever. If you're at a store and they have primers for something you reload, pick up a couple sleeves of them at least. And just keep doing that over time. I don't worry about this. It doesn't affect me much. I worry about it for y'all that are trying to get started. I have enough primers that I'm pretty good to go for a long-ass time. And I'd say another thing is, it's great to start getting practice with your reloading, and it's fun and it's kind of addictive. But don't just reload the shit out of everything till you run out of components. Reload enough to use. And the beauty of reloading is, if I have multiple components, do I need to reload myself a box of double O, or do I need to reload myself five boxes of dove shells? I can do either one. I have that flexibility. So that's why I love the shotgun to get started with. Uh, next is, you can reload slugs. I think there's a lot of people that don't think you can do that. Um, there are slugs you can buy for reloading, but my favorite slugs to reload are made, uh, you make them yourself. They're made, the, the mold is made by Lee, same company that makes the load all, and they're called the drive key slug. And they have a two part mold. There's a back piece that slides in the bottom, and then you cast the slug, and when you open it and you drop that slug out, 
Um, you have kind of this opening in the back, and they're they're very accurate for what they are. Um, these are not like high-end Sabo rounds that you can put in a rifle scope shotgun and shoot 175 yards like it's 4570. Old-style Foster slugs were designed for something. You're out hunting, there's a deer, swap a shell out 25, 35 yards away, boom, you got a 75 caliber hole. It doesn't matter if it expands when it's a 75 caliber hole. What you have is a dead deer, and anybody out there has ever shot a deer with an old-style slug knows what you usually see if you hit heart lungs. Right to the ground. They usually don't even kick. And you look at it, it's like a mini cannonball going through there. Well, you can cast your own slugs with Lee, and I think that's awesome. I've got a couple of videos on how to cast them and how to sh how to uh, and how they shoot and stuff like that. And even with a cool hack where you can make a roll crimp instead of using Lodol for the final crimp, I think that's more cosmetic than anything else, but it looks kind of cool, just in case you want to know. Uh, next is, it's really hard to do something stupid reloading a shotgun shell, and I'd say it's almost, I don't want to say it's impossible, I can't think of how to do it, but there was an old saying we used to have in technology development that, I tried to make it idiot-proof, but the idiots keep outsmarting me, so I'm not going to say it's impossible. I'm going to say it's highly, highly, highly improbable that you're going to make a mistake loading a shotgun shell and not figure out you've done it, like a double charge or something like that, because it's not going to crimp shut. There's a, a finite amount of space in there within the safety margin. Um, so what I'm going to say is if you do something reloading a shotgun shell that causes an injury because of the way it was reloaded, you probably did something stupid on purpose because you thought it was going to be cool. And you probably shouldn't do that. But there are some rifle loads that use certain powders and leave enough space in the case that you could conceivably double charge them. And if you did that, you would still be able to seat the round and you could end up with a way overpressured round. That can happen. It does happen. It usually doesn't happen, but it can. I have never seen it with a shotgun. I'm not saying you can't do it. Somebody will tell me you saw somebody do it. Um, but usually when bad shit happens with a shotgun, somebody decides, let's see what would happen if we loaded an explosive inside a shotgun. Something stupid like that. Um, it's, it's inherently a safe activity. Uh, I think reloading as a whole, if you follow procedure, is. But I think developing your procedure with something that kind of has training wheels, uh, not really a bad idea. And my last thought on the shotgun is more back to the general nature of the shotgun. I believe that the person that masters the shotgun does not go hungry. Um, it, it really is a tool that when you develop the skill set of that locking on to that moving target, keeping your head right, keeping your eyes right, cheek weld, not lifting the gun up, When you get to that point where you're consistent in your ability to hit, you know, birds, clays, whatever with a shotgun, you're going to be a good rifle shot. Now you might, if you've never shot a rifle, you might have to learn some um, basic fundamentals. But what I've learned, having had people who I've worked with who have never shot a rifle but grew up shooting a shotgun, And, and actually hunting and learning to get their head down on the barrel and all and, and take out grouse on the wing and whatever. Teaching that person to shoot, you know, a rifle to the point where you'd be comfortable putting them in a blind 
and saying within 200 yards, if you see a deer, just shoot it, it doesn't take long. However, I've seen people that are okay rifle shots as long as they're shooting at a steady, non-moving thing with a rest. And you give them a shotgun, it takes a lot more work to get their fundamentals right. So I kind of look at, like, when, especially with your kids, when you start training someone to shoot, starting with a shotgun is kind of like when you start teaching somebody to drive starting with a stick shift. You teach somebody to drive a stick shift, you put them in an automatic, they're not going to have a problem. I'm not going to say it transfers that quickly, but to me it does. So I I really love the shotgun, and uh, I really love reloading for it, and I really love the flexibility that it offers. And you guys know that I'm big on skill set development. And I kind of feel like when you end a year, right, I'm not big on New Year's resolutions. I think that's a lot of virtue signaling bullshit. It's why... The gym is completely crowded on January 3rd and totally empty on January 25th, right? I'm more big on end-of-year reviews. Instead of talking some shit about what we're going to do next year, let's be honest with ourselves with what we got done this year. And I think when you have that, that moment with yourself and you ask yourself, well, what did I accomplish this year? Things like I expanded my garden, etc., that's all great, and you should have stuff like that to talk about. My preps are better, whatever it is. I make more money. There should be three or four minimum hard skills that you either got a lot better at or you got to the point where you could do them. And this is one of those skills that I honestly believe. Buy yourself a decent manual. I don't have that in the video notes yet, but Lyman's manual is really good. I'll add that to the final notes uh, once I get the, the, the uh, process version up. Um and a Lee Lodal tool and some components and some shot shells. And I, I I don't see why anybody with an IQ over like 80 can't get that shit in their hands on Friday and, honest to God, go out probably Saturday afternoon and fire some rounds safely, as long as you practice good gun safety. Like, you're not going to have a danger from the reloaded ammunition. A skill that's this versatile that you can obtain the basics of in a day, if you don't have it, you probably should. So again, i got links to the different Lee Lodals, to the molds, etc. Uh, most of them are Amazon links. I wanted to give you all a link to um, Buckshot molds, because I think that's kind of cool. They're very hard to find right now. Uh, Lee even directly, and they're probably the best place to get them, is out of stock with them. Um, there are some Buckshot molds if you want to look them up yourself, but... It just seems like it's really expensive right now, and there's plenty of buckshot to buy by the bag. Uh, again, I love number four, so I got a bag of number four buck linked for you in the show notes. And with that, we'll wrap things up for the podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Well, hey, folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 155, and today's episode is called, So How Do Sales Swells Work, and Should You Use Them? They're two very, very different things. I really didn't have this planned for today, but over this week, I've gotten a ton of questions on old videos. Uh, most of those videos are videos of my active food forest that's growing and evolving right now that was built on a swale-based architecture. And most of the questions, you know the number one question, what about mosquitoes? Um, and, and I'm unfair with that question sometimes, and it's 
It's the same reason that Jimmy Buffett gets the ass when he's doing a two-hour concert and people just keep screaming Margaritaville, right? Like, when you've answered a question literally hundreds of times, you're like, go to somebody else with this question. However, the question actually brings up a valid point. See, most of y'all that follow me, you know the answer because I've done this so many times. Swales do not make mosquitoes because swales do not hold water. They infiltrate water. If they're designed right and put in the right place. So let's just start out with, how could you break that? Let's say you live at the edge of a swamp. Let's say your water table is two feet deep. Let's say you put in some big old mega nine meter by one and a half meter or two meter deep swales. Huge ones, Jeff Lawton style, 25-ton excavator. You know what you're going to end up with? Stinky, stagnant canals. Why? You've cut into the... Uh, the water table, and especially when you get that water table that's already shallow coming up, you might get three, six, eight months out of the year that those swales are full of stinky, orange, nasty, algae-filled water. So you can screw it up. You absolutely can screw it up. So this is how do swales work, and should you use them? The first thing we need to look at is the landscape we're in, the climate that we're in, and the overall strategy for the property, what we want it to look like in the end. And this comes from techniques, tactics, okay, and strategy, and breaking those apart. Strategy is the mile-high view. My strategy is to turn my property into, you know, a fully self-sufficient homestead equipped with a food forest and, uh, you know, whatever the total thing is. That's a strategy. The tactics are all the techniques used together and how they're placed together, used together, built together, designed and integrated together to arrive at the strategy. Okay? And the technique is at the lowest level of kind of the hierarchy. It's the individual thing. It's a swale. It's a hoogle mound. It's it's the way you build your chicken coop. You know, is it uh, if you build a uh, an earth based chicken coop instead of a, a timber frame chicken coop? It's a it's a pizza oven. These are all techniques. And if you get into like the earth level techniques, it's a it's a contour based garden. It's a raised bed. It's a submerged bed, right? It's it's anything that we use that is just an individual thing. It's like when you're painting and you have aqua blue paint. Do you use aqua blue paint? What are you painting? If you're painting the night sky, probably not. There might be some blue tones in there somewhere in some of the stars, but you know, like aqua blue is probably not going in a painting that is the Milky Way galaxy. So we have to use the right technique, right? put together with the right tactics to arrive at the right strategy based on the reality on the ground. So you have to think about this as a tool. Uh, the, the thumbnail is the, the famous quote, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When the only tool you have is a swale, you don't know permaculture. You've taken one arrow that's in this quiver that's huge, that has thousands of techniques, and you've decided this one technique equals permaculture. This is where everything breaks. So what are, we, what, what are we trying to do with a swale? We're either trying to very slowly and passively move water, or very slowly and passively spread water, and probably both, one way or another. 
Um, another place people get really confused with this topic. Well, it's just a ditch. It is a ditch. It is a ditch. But think of it this way. All swales are ditches. Not all ditches are swales. A swale is either on contour dead level or it's designed for a specific purpose. Maybe we go a little bit of a pitch. And when I say a little bit, I'm talking like a half a degree pitch. A half a degree pitch is over 100 feet is six inches of fall. That's that barely perceptible movement. A one degree pitch during a major rain event moves quicker than you think it would. We've, we've done in some installs using one degree pitches for certain things. Um, most of the time you're going dead level. That's what on contour means. On contour means if you look at a map, like a military style elevation map, and you see that contour line, it says it's 840 feet above sea level, and that line, at least in theory, is exactly, that is a contour, and that swale would go right on that contour line. Or on some other contour line they haven't marked for you. I'm just trying to get your head around this level thing. What that's designed to do is water starts raining, it comes down great, it goes into your swale, and it spreads evenly across the entire length of the swale. We're going to leave the slight pitch key line design style stuff out for today. It's, it's another level of complexity. I want to keep it simple. It spreads that water out. If the ditch never gets full, the rain stops. It just sits there with as much water as it held in it, and it begins immediately after the rain ceases to slowly seep into the ground. My swales on this property, I don't care how much it rains, Within 48 hours after the rain stopping or less, many times it's it's hours, not you know it's not even a full day. That water seeps into the ground and it disappears. And if you design swales for the right reason in the right place, the right way, the amount of water that infiltrates before it starts to accumulate goes up. It goes up because as the water finds fractures, as the water takes with it the root systems of trees that chase it down and fracture rock and break into hard pan and break into clay, the ground itself becomes more permeable and we begin to charge up the water table deeper in the aquifer instead of just at the surface. Now we can, if we do this and if we want this to happen and we have the right setup and we have enough land and enough catchment, we can actually cause new springs to form and start springing out of the side of land downgrade. That can happen. You have to have either significant natural water sources to do this with that you're restoring or you have to have enough catchment to make this happen. It's probably not going to happen for most of y'all. You don't have enough land to do it with. So what you're talking about again is you're simply taking this water and you're spreading it out and you're infiltrating it. The entire purpose of these systems, and when I say swale, if you're talking about a footpath with a garden next to it, that's a swale-like path. That's not a swale. When I say swale, I'm talking something that's significant. Six foot or more wide, say 12 inches or more deep, and you want to be shallow relative to your width because you want slow displacement. You want the water to come in slowly. Let's think about why it's not going to hold water long term unless you put it somewhere where you've dug into the water table or very close. Let's say that you were an idiot. And when you did your swales, you thought, I want it to hold water, which you don't. And you were digging in pure orange clay. So you took your excavator and you went through and you smashed like you're doing a pond. And you got this swale and you got it completely compacted with clay. 
And if you take a garden hose and leave it in there long enough, it'll fill up. And if you turn the water off, it'll sit there. And almost nothing, it's basically a pond, six foot wide, one foot deep in the center, several hundred feet long. Let me ask you a question. How long is it going to hold water when the rain stops and the sun comes out when it's that shallow? And the answer is not very long because it's going to evaporate. You learn that in physical science in fifth grade. So the only way we're going to have water stay stagnant long-term in a swale is we live in a place where it's continuous non-stop monsoons for six months out of the year. Guess what? You don't need swales there. Don't put them there. Or you're on the edge or into a swamp where you're digging into the water table. Guess what? You don't need swales there. Don't put swales there. Swales are generally installed on brittle landscapes with sufficient catchment with the rainfall available to fill them and infiltrate water, and they are tree-growing systems. I have gardens I've built. They're on contour. They look like little mini earthworks. That's what they are. They're not swales. When we say swale, we're talking significant ditch. And what we want to do when we dig that ditch, if it is highly compacted soil, we might even do something like if it's a really big swale, nine meters, right? That's... That's big. That's 27 foot. And some of the stuff Lawton does are that big. And there's a, a front cut, a middle cut, and a back cut. And, and three cuts of that bucket, th it's a three-meter bucket. And, and so it's huge. But let's say it's in really, really tough clay. And it's going to take a while for that to infiltrate. What you might do, once that swale's complete, is take something like a dozer with hooks And then you drive that dozer right down the center of that swale with those hooks and rip down into the subsoil at the bottom of the swale so that it will more quickly begin the infiltration process. What we're actually trying to do with a swale, you're coming down grade, you have your ditch, and then you have your berm. Your berm is all the material that you take out of the swale. You put it on the downgrade side and you leave it loosely packed. This is where you plant your trees. When the swale fulls, the berm does not hold the water even temporarily in the swale. The swale holds the water. If you'd taken all the dirt away, you still have the ditch. When you get up to the mound, the mound is so loosely packed, it, the water weeps into the mound and provides water to the young trees before they get their roots down deep and before they, they firm up and hold in that mound. Eventually, all of that that can happen has happened. The water begins to actually seep into the ground, looking for the aquifer, and it begins to flow very slowly through the landform down grade. Water that never flow up, it might wick up over a certain distance if there's enough spongy material there, but it flows downhill. Water moves at right angle to contour. It's one of the hard, fast rules in the universe. And that simply means water goes downhill. So it begins to flow through the landform, And we might have multiple swales, and the space between the swales is the inner swale, the area between swales. If you're, if you're doing a swale-based design, and you put in a swale A, swale B, swale C, down grade, and you plant your trees along those swale lines, the space in between that inner swale, there's really only three things you can do with it. If you want full-on food forestry all the way through, You can, you can plant it and fill it with other trees and woody vegetation. Trees, bushes, shrubs, vines. Okay? You can crop it. 
It's called alley cropping. You can grow conventional annual um, plants in there, or you can grow smaller perennials that are you know annually harvested or biannually harvested, or you can graze it. You can grow civo pasture, so you've got forest, forest, field, glade, and you can put animals through it and graze it. And if you're growing hay, and you shouldn't be, but if you were growing hay and mowing it, you're effectively mechanically grazing it. And that's really all you can do with it. And it, these architecture systems are, are tree-growing forest establishment systems. So right out of the gate, if you're not trying to establish a forest, don't do this. Doesn't mean we won't use contour-based earthworks. When we're talking swales, we're not doing this. This is a tree-growing system. Next, how steep is it? If it's too steep, you don't want to do this. How steep? It depends. What's the soil like? What's the rain like? What's the catchment like? There's not a uh, there's there's not a lot of options that you have, okay, where you can just say if it's over this percentage. There are certain percentages of degree of pitch you probably shouldn't do it, but something that's okay one place may not be in another. You really have to look at this with an engineering eye, and so my my. My biggest advice on this is if you're not sure, don't do it until you educate yourself enough to be sure or you get somebody that actually knows what they're doing to come in and consult with you and say yes based on your goals, your agenda, etc. I don't do consulting, don't ask, but I'm going to explain to you this way. If I walked into a place and my client said to me, I want a food forest over here, how should I put my swells in? I'd say right now we have to rewind about, you know, the length of the Bible, at least the Old Testament. We need to start way back here before we even discuss whether or not you should have a swale. The first thing I need to know is what do you want this property to do for you? What do you want it to look like, etc.? Then I'm going to take all of that, and I need you to honestly tell me how much time you have to put maintenance and work and effort into it, how long you plan to keep the property, tons of things. I need to analyze you first. So if I'm not analyzing you, you need to analyze you first. Then we can get into, okay, we do want a food forest. Do you have enough rainfall here that you can plant your forest without doing swales and not have to worry about irrigation? If we answer that with a yes, that doesn't mean we're not going to do swales, but we just took one of the reasons we would do them and we took it away. Are we going to put in ponds? If we're going to put in ponds... I may want to use swales to fill the ponds and deal with overflow from the pond. If I'm not putting in ponds, I just took another reason away that I would do swales. Are we in a place with a shallow water table? I may want to do berms, but not swales, because the swales are going to fill up with water and become stagnant, just like all the mosquito people fear on YouTube, right? So we have to completely analyze that. And so what we're looking is we're looking to reduce erosion... We're looking to infiltrate water. We're looking to spread water and spread nutrient. We're looking to establish trees. And we're looking to do that in a place where the, the degree of pitch, the space available, the catchment we have, all work for this one tactic or this one technique so that it becomes part of the tactic that we use to employ our strategy. If we don't have that, we don't do that. Think about it this way. You're not going to take, like, is a... Is a 10-millimeter combination wrench good or bad? I said 10-millimeter because I know some of y'all are all weird about 10-millimeters and you think they're like made of gold or something, right? So you'd say good. Well, a 9-16th, a 7-16th, a half-inch, a combination wrench of any size or shape 
Is it good or bad? It's not anything. It's a wrench. If you need to turn a 7-16-inch bolt and you have a 7-16-inch wrench, you got what you need to turn the bolt, right? Okay, if you need to drill a hole, you're not going to take a 7-16 combination wrench and try to drill a hole with it. It's really obvious that that tool is wrong for the job. There's nowhere other than solid concrete that you can go where you have access to and ability to do what you want with the ground that you can't dig a great big ditch if you really want to. So that means you have the power to do this thing whether you should or whether you shouldn't. So it's very important that you lock into what, again, I, I know this seems like we're just completely forgetting the swell, and we are for a bit. Start out with you. What do you want? What do you want your property to look like? How much do you want to work on your property? What do you want to grow? How do you want to grow it? How do you want to harvest it? How much land do you have? How much catchment do you have? How much rain do you get? What's your soil like? Once you get all of those things figured out, once you do that, that analysis of yourself and the property, then we start saying, okay, we are going to want chickens. We are going to need housing for chickens. Okay, great. That's, then where does the house go? It goes here. Okay, great. Now we're starting to put in hard structures. Okay, now how am I going to get there? I'm going to walk down this path. What can be on both sides of this path? So that every day when I go let the chickens out, I am function stacking that. Okay, I do want a food forest. What's my rainfall like? What's my dry season like? What's my soil like? Okay, I do want swales. Or no. You know what? I don't really need, I'm going to be putting in a small backyard food forest with, you know, 50 trees, 25 trees. I'm going to prune them small, intensively manage it. Sheet mulch. I'm going to sheet mulch that. But I do want this little frog pond. Well, then I'm going to put this little micro swale in, but it's part of a nutrient cycle and filling the pond. I'm not bringing a, I'm not bringing an excavator in here, not even a mini X. You have to come at this design this way. If you don't, you're going to end up doing something, and I see Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberties on with us right now. You're going to end up doing something really bad. I bet Nick, if I give him enough time, will type what it is and read my mind what it is. You're going to create a certain kind of error if you don't do the things I'm talking about. And I'm sure Nick will tell us in just a second in the chat exactly what kind of error that is. And I'm not going to give away the name of it, but the way we define this error is it is a mistake that once you make it, you regret the fact that you made it forever. You never stop regret. You always think, I shouldn't have done that. And the reason is simple. If I take type one, there's Tom, Tom beat you to it, Nick. If I take and I, I go in and I decide I want to do like a little small micro orchard and I want to use... Um, earthworks, and I want to use contour, and I want to channel flow and nutrient water, and I go in with a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and I build me little bitty kind of like micro swales and put them all in and plant my trees, and I decide someday, you know, those ditches really don't help me very much. Those swales don't really help me very much, but I can't move the dirt back in. I can go get a couple of loads of dump truck dirt, and I can fill the ditches in so they're flat, and they're going to they're gonna, and the berms are going to work fine, and everything's going to be beautiful. It's going to go back, and I can throw some grass seed down, and I'm good. That's not a type 1 error. I can fix it. I can reverse it. I can change it without having to move heaven and earth. If I take 
even like an 8,000 pound mini X. And I go in and I put swells in that are eight foot wide and I make big burns with them and I fill them up with trees and the trees grow in and I realize this was a bad place to put swells. The only way I can fix that is to bring a bulldozer in and bulldoze the berm and the trees that I have all this time and money into back into the ditch. There's no world in which I can afford to fill those ditches back in. That's a type 1 error. Putting a dam where you shouldn't have is a type 1 error. You're living with it. And the way we avoid that is we start from personal, individual analysis. Nick's on here, great consultant. First thing I know that Nick analyzes when he goes out to talk to a client, you analyze the client before you even look at the property. Who is this person? What do they want? What can I do for them? What can I do for them? What are they realistic about? What are they unrealistic about? How much when, they, when a client tells Nick, I bet you when a client tells Nick some shit like, I'm going to work on my property 30 hours a week, Nick goes, okay, that's 15. Because I would. I already, I'm just going to cut the number you give me in half. And I'm going to design to that because then I've left you with a reasonable expectation of maintenance. And so I know we got bigger than just swells today, but those are what swells are. Those are how they work. And there's the thought process. It's not as simple as swells are good, swells are bad. I should do swells. I shouldn't. Swells make mosquitoes. Swells don't make mosquitoes. Because, again, if you go where I used to live in Jacksonville, Florida when I was a kid and put in swells there, you're going to end up, they're going to be full 10 months out of the year with orange water. That's what's going to happen because you can, they, my grandfather had a well put in to water his grass with, and the water table was four foot deep, and the guy that put the well in for him dug the well with a garden hose and a piece of PVC pipe, working it down in the ground, and went down eight foot and said it's twice as deep as you need to be so you never run out of water. I don't even know why he put a well in to water the grass because he never would have had to water that grass. It would have been fine. But my grandfather is one of those kind of golf course lawn guys. You're not going to put a swale in there unless you hate yourself. And if you don't hate yourself before you do it, you will hate yourself after you do it. And with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. And uh, I will be back next week with another episode of Miyagi Morning. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.